Welcome to the Mayo Clinic Cardiovascular Continuing Medical Education Podcast. Join us each week to discuss the most pressing topics in cardiology and gain valuable insights that can be directly applied to your practice. I'd like to uh, give a warm welcome to all of our listeners and, and viewers in another in our series of interviews with the experts. Uh, my name is Malcolm Bell. I'm the Vice Chair for the Department of Cardiovascular Medicine, and I'm delighted today to have in the studio my colleague, Dr. John Stulak, who's a professor of surgery that works in our Department of Cardiovascular Surgery with a very special interest in coronary revascularization. So, John, uh, looking forward to, to our conversation over the next uh, few minutes. It's, it's, an, it's been an honor to share patients with you over the past decade, Dr. Bell, and it's uh, truly an honor to be here today, so thank you. The honor is all ours uh, today. So let, let me let's just uh, start off with just asking you just a, a broad question here. What, what are the trends that you uh, have sort of witnessed in the, uh, the field of coronary bypass surgery? Let, let's say just over the last 10, 15 years now. No, that's a great question. You know, heart disease continues to be the number one killer of men and women. Interestingly, even though we've had improvements in medical therapy, improvements in percutaneous intervention with stenting, Coronary artery bypass grafting uh, still ends up being the most common operation performed by the cardiac surgeon, and that has not changed. From my standpoint, the types of patients I'm seeing, quite surprisingly, is, is a trend toward younger patients uh, with more of a malignant uh, family history. So I think this is owed to a lot of earlier screening, people going to their doctors, asking the questions and not being stoic and putting it off. Certainly, there's a disease of the aged. But I think younger patients are being detected much earlier. That, that's what I've noticed. In that thing, are you, are you seeing fewer older patients? You're just recognizing, of course, I mean, you and I have these conversations you know, uh, weekly, but we see a lot of older patients, you know, people you know, living longer, they really have very severe disease. But of course, now uh, you know, we have uh, better uh, you know, techniques for treating these uh, in, in the cath lab with uh, PCI. So are you seeing fewer of those uh, very old patients. Uh, you already made yeah. the comment, you're seeing more younger patients. Yeah, I, I, you make a great point. I think the proportion of, let's just say, people in their 50s and 60s is, I think, overtaking patients in their 70s, 80s, and even advanced into the higher 80s. I, I think a lot of those patients are choosing percutaneous approaches, uh, like you said, not only better technology in terms of stenting, but also the you know, the periprocedural techniques and the way we manage these patients has improved. So probably the 80 plus year olds are seeking more percutaneous interventions. And we are seeing as a proportion, the 40s, 50s, 60s come through. So, so getting back to that younger uh, population and you know, even that middle-aged population, you know, we all agree that the patients who have complex uh, you know, or three vessel disease, particularly if it's complex, usually lend themselves you know, more towards uh, surgical revascularization rather than percutaneous, and particularly if they're diabetic or have LV dysfunction. Most young patients, you know, they're not really that keen to have surgery. And so what are the options that, you know, when you're discussing this with, with these younger patients, now they've been you know, talking about having open heart surgery, uh, what options are you going to offer them? And, and, and maybe we'll just start off with uh, off pump, you know, is, is one you know, question I'll throw out there for you. The, the beauty of coronary surgery is it really can be individualized. The types of conduits we use, the approach in terms of on versus off pump, any kind of hybrid or minimally invasive options, and it really can be tailored to the patient. S since you started with on pump uh, versus off pump, 
you know, the pendulum really is swinging back toward on-pump techniques. And in 2016, actually, the on-pump uh, procedure overtook off-pump as the most common performed. Whereas before, for the past 15 to 20 years, it was there was a favor toward the off-pump. I think that off-pump surgery does uh, offer some advantages uh, for certain patient groups, particularly renal dysfunction and those with bleeding hematologic uh, issues in terms of coagulopathies. But other than that, some really elegant long-term studies really have questioned whether or not patency rates are equivalent in the on versus off pump. So I think that what we're seeing is the field is using a more selective approach of off pump techniques, maybe toward uh, some of those uh, specialized patients. So, so let me push you just here a little bit. So we, again, we're talking about younger versus you know, older patients. And you raised the uh, the question of patency, which obviously is, is critical because you know if we compromise in patency, then maybe we should be talking about stents. Of course, I mean this is this is the beauty of uh, you know surgery uh, in terms of uh, longevity of uh, conduits. But in that older population, you know, it's still important, but it's a little less important than you know compared to someone who's you know forty years of age. Is that where you might use uh, off pump more than uh, on pump, or again the same trends that are seen? I think the same trends are there. I think that, you know, we never want to compromise patency, of course, but I would say perhaps especially in the older population, you know, the off-pump techniques lend themselves to blood pressure swings that we don't necessarily see with the on-pump techniques. Certainly if there is worry about uh, peripheral vascular disease and calcification of the aorta, et cetera, the kind of minimal touch technique of the ascending aorta would be advantageous or in patients with carotid disease and prior stroke where we wanna keep the blood pressure very constant and, and controlled. Again, I even think in the older patients that it's, it's more of a selective use now. And so getting back to this younger population, you've probably been asked this question many, many times. Can you do this robotically and can you do it minimally invasively? Can we do it? Yes. Should we be doing it? I'm not sure. I would be quite honest to say that this takes a lot of specialized training. There are most certainly centers, you know, in the United States uh, and elsewhere that offer outstanding results. From a hybrid perspective, which is, uh, you know, a kind of a mini incision on the left side, you could offer a left internal mammary artery to the left anterior descending. That could be done off pump and then uh, combine that with PCI to the right and the circumflex uh, coronary territories. That's the hybrid. And, you know, that's in a patient where I wouldn't be perhaps considering uh, multiple arterial grafting, which we can talk about in a moment. And then robotically, certainly, I think there's even fewer places doing full endoscopic and robotic uh, operations, but they're out there. These are people that have specialized training and really dedicate their practice to it. So these are the potentials, but it needs to be a highly skilled person that does a, does a high volume to preserve those outcomes that you can get with a conventional approach. Is this a longer operation and can they reach all of the, uh, the major epicardial vessels? So we're talking about the right and the posterior uh, vessels. Obviously, the LED is accessible. So I think there's a learning curve, just like with anything. I think if surgeons are starting out with this, it really depends on their volume. And I think if they're earlier in the learning curve, absolutely, I think this is going to take longer than a conventional operation. And, and this bears out in the literature. For those highly specialized surgeons that perform a, a high volume for this, while it takes a little bit longer, they still do, you know, 
degrees of revascularization and number of uh, bypasses performed and territories are equivalent to a conventional operation. So it's just about getting to that competency level, uh, but it, they're here. They're here in this country offering it. And again, you brought up the question of patency. Uh, are the patency rates uh, similar to um, you know, just you know, direct vision versus uh, robotic and endovascular? This is where the literature is hard because, you know, when you talk about patency and coronary graphs, you're talking 10, 20, 30 years to really get the full story. There are midterm results kind of in the five to 10 year range that would suggest that they are similar. Now, the literature is hard because some of these robotic operations were done with vascular connectors and staplers and, you know, some of the innovative techniques for coronary anastomosis. So, the classical hand-sewn anastomosis, it's, uh, it's kind of a grab bag, so to, so to speak, in trying to analyze it. But all told, no matter how you did the anastomosis, in the short to midterm, five to 10 year, it seems they're somewhat com comparable. And, as we, and then you brought up the, um, you know, the option of hybrid, you know, so uh, combined surgical uh, and percutaneous revascularization. What proportion of patients uh, undergoing you know, surgical revascularization are gonna have a hybrid approach? Nationally, it's about 20%. So about one in five will have some either hybrid approach or a minimally invasive approach. A lot of times, what I have found in the clinic talking to patients, it's sometimes the younger patients that may want a smaller incision in these kind of uh, alternate uh, approaches. The older patients sometimes just say, no, we're going to do what's tried and true. And, you know, I don't need, quote, that fancy stuff. But, you know, where, where hybrid in the young patient puzzles me a bit is you know, you really need to have that conversation with the patient and the consideration of using multiple arterial grafts. Hybrid surgery is, uh, you know, a left internal mammary to the LAD and then PCI to the other territories. Uh, I would suppose if you had a patient in whom you were going to consider saphenous vein grafts for the other territories and a lima to the LAD, a hybrid approach probably would have would be thought to have similar outcomes because of the newest generation stenting and outstanding results with PCI. But I think in the younger patient, for, for me in my practice at least, it's multiple arterial grafting until I'm given a reason not to do it. And there's multiple kind of reasons and comorbidities why you wouldn't. But for a patient in their 40s and 50s, you're thinking about getting a 30 and 40 year result uh, rather than in a 70, 80 year old where a 10 to 20 year result you know, may suffice with life expectancy. So that's how I approach the young patient. And I've heard this from some other surgeons that say that, well, if, if I'm in there uh, doing the revascularization, I might as well just uh, revascularize everything. But you bring up a really important point about the arterial revascularization in the younger patients. So maybe we just spend a, a moment, just, just walk us through that in terms of, again, this younger patient, which would include diabetic patients, you would clearly have a, sort of a, a, a worse prognosis. How hard should we as cardiologists be pushing to have the surgeon make sure that uh, there are multiple arterial grafts, you know, assuming that they're available. So we're talking about the radio, the rema, the lemur. Just walk us through that. Yeah, this is a this is a great question. And multiple arterial grafting is underutilized, I think, for the patient population who to whom it would be available. That's for several reasons. A, it takes longer. You know, you have to harvest the right internal mammary artery in addition. Um, some people have hesitancy using the radial artery because it's known to be a more reactive graft in terms of a spastic, spasticity. Um, but I think, you know, this is where the heart team approach and a discussion comes. And 
coronary disease should be like valvular disease or a heart failure, an LVAG consideration, et cetera. It's a heart team approach. And so it's not so much the cardiologists, you know, pushing the surgeon, but everyone at the table saying, okay, I have a 50 year old type two diabetes and, you know, normal ventricle. And, you know, what are we thinking? And this is, this is the perfect patient that someone may say, oh, well, type two diabetes, I'm not going to consider bilateral mammary, but there's very, very good data saying that, you know, it, the, the way in which you harvest the mammaries really impact. And so a skeletonized approach, there's been very elegant studies, including uh, matched and randomized uh, trials, mainly from Europe, showing no difference in sternal healing, et cetera, and improvement in outcome. So I, th I really think we should be in the younger patient looking at multiple arterial, unless we're really given a compelling reason not to. We have to remember a few things. The mammary arteries are an endocrine organ. They secrete nitric oxide, they have insight to flow, and they're really not subject to the calcific changes and the mechanical stresses that a saphenous vein graft is. And so, you know, having those territories bathed in nitric oxide, I think, is what gives us the longevity. Yeah, so I think that, and you use the term skeletonized, uh, you know, grafts. I mean, this is in, you know, rather than a pedicle graft, correct? That is correct. This is meticulous minimal touch technique where you divide branches and you preserve all of those arcades to the chest wall. And they've done very good radionucleotide and imaging studies to, to show that the blood flow to the sternum can be preserved with this technique. And so really wound healing problems can be avoided. The other way too is, is alternate ways to close the sternotomy incision, whether it's plates and screws uh, or alternate ways such as zip ties really to get 360 degree uh, closure. So for the high-risk sternum, there's alternate ways to, for closure that could uh, help guard against uh, sternal issues post-bilateral mammary harvest. You know, a number of years ago, maybe like 10 years or so ago, uh, my recollection was that the proportion of patients undergoing uh, multiple arterial grafts, particularly with bilateral mammaries, in the United States was probably less than 10%. Has that number grown significantly uh, in the last decade? Tell us what it is at our institution. Fortunately, we're a little bit above the national average. We're approaching 30 to 40% in the appropriate patient populations. Nationally, it's still between 20 and 30%. So only about a quarter of patients, you know, in whom it would be appropriate, you know, are getting multiple arterial grafts. And even if you're not going to use bilateral mammary, we need to realize that the radial artery, even the addition of one additional arterial graft provides some incremental improvement in survival. Again, these are very hard because these techniques are newer. And like I talked about, to really move the needle with, quote, examining patency, you need decades, not necessarily years. And so to look at really the outcomes of these patients is 20, 30 years in terms of studying it. Let, let me finish up just with a practical question. So, John, if you're faced with a relatively young patient, and let's say they're diabetic, they got complex, you know, three-vessel coronary disease, and you want to revascularize them with uh, all arterial grafts, but then it's apparent that that's not going to work for, your, for, for whatever, it could be a technical reason, and now you're faced with the possibility you're going to have to put a, a vein graft in, into one of those vessels. Would you or others at that point say, okay, well, we'll finish the revascularization with arterial grafts, and the remaining vessel, uh, if it's feasible, be sent to the cath lab for drug-eluting stent placement? getting back to that hybrid approach. Is that a reasonable way to, to look at things? 
I think it is. And, you know, I, I'm not sure the technical issues to dissuade or kind of prevent the, you know, that you're describing the multiple arterial use. But, you know, I, I think if it's exhausted, if the radio arteries aren't good because of peripheral vascular disease, I think that's entirely reasonable. That's, that's kind of an unfortunate circumstance. And fortunately, we don't kind of come across it all too often. But when we do, I think that's, that would be a fine situation in, in whom to consider a hybrid approach. But I do think it really just does stress the point that diabetic patients enjoy the improvement in survival even more incrementally than someone without diabetes in terms of multiple arterial. So I do think that whether it's, if you're concerned about the sternum, maybe a radial artery composite off the uh, left internal mammary, you don't need to sacrifice both mammaries. But so that's what I do love. Again, it gets back to that tailored approach that individualized approach to the patient. Getting short of time here, I just want to ask you a very, very quick question. In, in your practice, what proportion of patients would be isolated proximal LAD disease that you're revascularizing uh, surgically? Well, again, that, that comes to a discussion with you know my teammates here, obviously, and we have a very collegial environment. There's certainly a subset of patients in whom I think the left internal mammary artery to LAD should be considered, even through a conventional approach. Again, we have great cardiopulmonary bypass, perioperative techniques. We're even extubating patients in the operating room now. So I think that the proximal LAD lesion, if it's uh, difficult to, to approach percutaneously, or even in a diabetic who we think is going to get 30 to 40 years out of this graft, that's someone that we should not necessarily shy away from. But I will say that sometimes the patients, especially the young patients, it's hard to wrap their head around open heart surgery at such a young age. What I say is, a proximal LAD PCI won't necessarily burn a bridge to later surgery because it is proximal. That's the whole thing is keeping, keeping real estate for us down the road. So if the patient's not ready and we think we can kick the can down the road a little bit, I think that's a reasonable approach. And then, then there's still a candidate for a limit to LAD later, or even if there's progression of disease. Yeah, and I think that's a common scenario, isn't it? And, you know, sometimes we like to joke that, you know, putting a mammary artery into the LAD almost confers immortality. So, uh, well, I, I think we have to wrap it up here, uh, John. Always just great talking with you. It's great. I'm glad that we could bring that, those conversations that you and your other colleagues and I and my colleagues have day to day. And it just emphasizes, and, and to bring it, you know, to the, this podcast and I think that it just emphasizes that this has to be done, you know, with that hot team approach. And then typically then those discussions that we just heard there, you know, held between, you know, uh, surgeons and interventional cardiologists. At the end of the day, though, it's the, it's the patient that's going to make up, uh, you know, their mind about what they want to have, assuming that any of those procedures is actually going to be feasible and, and safe. So uh, thank you so much for taking the time, your busy day, to, to be with us here today. And I think that uh, this is really uh, very interesting and useful information that you shared with us. Thank you, Dr. Bell. The honor is all mine. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today. Feel free to share your thoughts and suggestions about the podcast by emailing cvselfstudy at mayo.edu. Be sure to subscribe to the Mayo Clinic Cardiovascular CME podcast on your favorite platform and tune in each week to explore today's most pressing cardiology topics with your colleagues at Mayo Clinic. This has been a Mayo Clinic podcast.